0: Hello everyone. So when uh, Rupert asked me to preach a couple of sermons, um, I definitely knew I was gonna do at least one in a Psalm because back in January I decided to spend a year in the Psalms in my quiet times. It's been an interesting friendship. We didn't really get on at first. I found them quite difficult and didn't really receive much from them. Um, But I think, yeah, we're really growing to, to love each other and I'm looking forward to this time this morning as we look at Psalm 32 together. So please grab your Bible or your service sheet as I uh, read that out to us. Psalm 32, a mask of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, I wonder if you remember the first time you asked Jesus for forgiveness. I'm sure you remember that in the beginning there was a great time of joy like you've never known before in your life. And your, your life and your walk with Jesus began to open like a, a flower in bloom. Your hearts began to rest easy knowing all, uh, all of our sins are taken care of at the cross. But then we realize our daily walk with Jesus is not all flowers in bloom because we discover that sin still plays a part in the choices we make, the way we live, and the world around us. And so begins a life of discipleship, life as an apprentice to Jesus. Yes, Jesus has taken care of our sins at the cross, but there is also a daily care for us that Jesus wants to be part of. He wants us to invite him into our, our daily battle and not hide our sin from him. The apprentice of Jesus must hold confession as a hugely important aspect to their discipleship. So the question is, what comes to mind when you think of confession? Do you think confession and then equate that to the grace of God? Do you think confession is a glorious pathway back to that, that beautiful joy, even in dark times? Or do you think confession and equate that to a feeling of guilt? Do you think confession is something you couldn't possibly do for certain things in life? Best keep that from God's eyes. Well, I'm a big fan of the detective genre, and I've been spending my downtime lately watching old episodes of *Midsummer Murders. So aside from the forgiveness of sins by the grace of God made available to us by the blood of Christ, when I hear confession, I also think of Detective Chief Inspector Tom Barnaby. And in any detective drama, I always find it amusing when in some episodes the, the murderer openly confesses to the crime without the detective revealing a shred of evidence, and certainly no long, you know, drawn-out court case. The criminal just unravels with all the details of what they did, how and why they did it. Now I'm assuming this is not just lazy script writing, but They're artistically tapping into an aspect of human nature. They're revealing an important truth. A soul burdened with sin needs to confess. They've hidden this crime for so long that confession becomes cathartic. It's a huge relief. It's interesting to know that uh, from the concept of catharsis, Freud developed psychoanalysis, where one person is healed by sitting with another person, expressing deep and sometimes hidden emotion pouring out and emptying the heart in order to cope, understand, and move on from present difficulty. Now, before Barnaby, Sherlock, Columbo, Benoit Blanc, before Sigmund Freud, and even before the Greeks and their use of catharsis, King David was writing about this dynamic, emptying the sin-burdened heart to then discover emotional relief, a return to a sense of joy. But Psalm 32 is not just about feeling better, it's not less than that, but it wants to give us so much more. We see a very deep and meaningful wisdom about feeling better. We see that at the very core of a life lived with happiness, there is the necessity for forgiveness. Do you notice that in the the opening verses of the Psalm? Take a look at verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. We've got the repeated words blessed. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man. But but what does the psalmist mean by blessed? Well, we're not going to jump about between the psalms. We're not going to do a major macro study of the whole book. But we're going to consider how the word blessed, repeated in these opening verses, pick up the same meaning as how they're found in Psalm 1 and 2. In Psalm 1 and 2, the the blessed one is described by contrast. You have two options in this life, the way of the wicked or the way of the wise. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. The way of the wise leads to a life that is happy, fulfilled, well-fed, and nurtured. And so with Psalm 32, we're unpacking and learning more about the blessed one. We are unpacking and learning more about the one who walks the way of the wise, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Transgression, sin, iniquity, they are forgiven, covered, no longer counted. We see the blessed one, the person who is wise, who is happy, fulfilled, well-fed and nurtured is forgiven. Their sin is entirely, completely, 100% wiped away So you see, this is not just a psalm about the act of confessing and feeling better, the cathartic release of emotion. It's also about forgiveness for that which is being confessed. In midsummer Murders, not everyone who willingly confesses their crime is seeking forgiveness. On on the contrary, uh, me and Fern watched a particularly disturbing episode with a, a countryside vicar who brutally murders three people he then confesses to Barney with a tremendous sense of pride about it. No guilt, no shame, no desire for forgiveness. And then, weirdly, he throws himself off the top of the church tower for some reason. And that was the end of Fern <laughs> indulging me in watching Midsummer Murders. So, at the start, I put forward the question, what comes to mind when you think of confession? Another way to ask it is, is how do you feel do you feel like it's a, a chore on your to-do list? A bit like taking the bins out for tomorrow morning. I'm sure you know the feeling. You, you look out the window and it's dark and raining. So you think, you know, we, we can manage another week. Then you look at the rubbish piling up around the bin in the kitchen, the black bin bags piled on top of the wheelie bin. Another week is going to be impossible. So you begrudgingly put on your coat, you clear up all the ro- rubbish, and take out the wheel bin and put it uh, beside the road, ready for collection tomorrow. Well, that's not a helpful way of thinking about confession. That's not the way Psalm 32 presents it. We don't see a chore on a to-do list. We don't see empty words spoken begrudgingly because it's the right thing to do. Verse 1 and 2 introduces confession as the path to being blessed because of forgiveness. God's amazing grace is what should be flashing from the page. What an amazing God that teaches us how to feel better, how to feel happy again, how to unburden our hearts. But if all that sounds too simple, then that's fair enough, because walking the way of the wise, it can be a long and winding road. We don't necessarily just fall in love with the idea of confessing the hidden sin within our daily lives. We may take some convincing. And so in three points, we'll consider what the path from feeling burdened to feeling blessed really looks like. And, and hopefully by the end, the Holy Spirit will leave us not only convinced, but with a, a sense of gratitude and urgency to take all our daily sins to the cross. So our first point, which is there on the, the sheet as well, confession is taken responsibility for disobedience. So let's begin by considering what the path looks like when a person avoids confessing their sin, when a person avoids the sin in their heart and does not take responsibility for it. Imagine the sinful act has been done, how do you respond? Well, why not try ignoring the whole thing together? Just forget about the problem of of having sinned against God. Confessing to God is not an inevitable or an automatic outcome after doing something wrong. Avoiding, ignoring uh, the problem of sin is actually a very common thing to do. It's a very ordinary way of behaving, in a way. A person might avoid their sin out of shame, but equally could be out of stubbornness, could be from overindulgence, but could be out of indifference or even theological ignorance. Maybe the person avoids sin because they're too busy. More important things happening right now. Maybe the person is full of doubt or anger towards God. And so the last thing they want to do right now is talk to him about his forgiveness. But whatever the reason for avoiding confession and seeking forgiveness, we must be fully aware of the consequences. And David makes it very clear what happened when he avoided the sin in his heart. So let's look down at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. The intensity of that image alone should prevent us from avoiding or ignoring God, especially with the sin in our hearts. It's not as if the problem can just be swept under the bed. It's not something that will lay dormant. This is like a parasite eating away at our soul. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And then David recalls how the burden of uh, this hidden and unconfessed sin was causing not just internal pain, but also external pressure. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There is no moment of rest for the unconfessed heart. Day and night, says David, did the burden of guilt weigh him down, to the point that all energy was squeezed out of him. Think about Adam and Eve in the the Garden of Eden. The act of sinning was great and easy to do, but the after effect was, was hard going. They remained silent about it. They avoided their sin and they felt deeply ashamed and tried to hide from God. In the Old Testament, we have a language around sin that isn't just about bearing the emotional weight of guilt but also bearing the responsibility of being guilty. In Genesis 4.13, Cain says his punishment is greater than he can bear. Exodus 28.38, Aaron, as a high priest, must bear any guilt of the people of Israel so they can make imperfect offerings to a perfect God. In the book of Numbers 14.18, we see that a husband can bear the weight of his wife's iniquity even if it's nothing to do with him. And in various places in the Bible, we see how bearing the responsibility for another's guilt is something that God does for his bride, Israel. God takes responsibility for her sin by taking it from the people through forgiveness. This is brought out in places like Micah 718. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? And then continues into verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God saw our sin and he took responsibility for it by offering a chance for forgiveness. After Adam and Eve sinned, consider what God does. He calls to Adam, where are you? Now, I I think God is, is giving Adam and Eve an opportunity to take responsibility for their guilt. He knows where they are, and he knows what's happened, so he gives them a chance to take responsibility. And again with Cain, after he has sinned, he says, "'Where is Abel, your brother?' Again, God knows what has happened, but gives a chance for Cain to take responsibility." In the end, of course, God takes the ultimate responsibility for humanity's guilt. This is what the cross is all about. This is the gospel. The good news is is God has taken upon himself the responsibility of our guilt so that we can live without such a burden. So I ask again, how do you feel about confession? Well, if we understand God's grace in offering his sin to take responsibility for our sin, So that we could offer our sins without the enormous weight or burden of guilt then shouldn't we be doing it gladly urgently willingly we can walk on up to god with our sin and do so without shame or guilt or worrying we might be rejected refused or or punished we can walk on up to god as if it's a privilege a gift a beautiful opportunity seeking the forgiveness provided to us by the blood of jesus And that takes us to our our second point. Forgiveness is receiving the gift of deliverance. Now, when someone confesses the crime to Barnaby, they may feel a sense of freedom after being imprisoned by their guilt. But soon enough, they will be literally imprisoned for their crime. But with Psalm 32, we see that confession to God means the believer will encounter God's mercy. The believer who confesses has God's mercy and receives a gift of the most amazing grace. As a direct contrast to the previous verses, we see that verse five to seven, the person who seeks forgiveness receives deliverance from the heavy burden that sin places upon their heart. Look down at first five, David says to God, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David found forgiveness in God. Notice the, the three words again sin, iniquity, and transgressions, plural this time. David completely empties his heart before God and he was forgiven. Let's not brush that aside as if, as if oh, yeah, you know, typical God. This is huge. Outside of of God, the the sense of relief from confession may give a person a a temporary feeling of relief at best, but but this passes and still demands punishment. But confession to God guarantees forgiveness and a transformative forgiveness. Look at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Three things have changed in David's perspective. Firstly, he's no longer hiding his sin from God, but God himself has become a hiding place, David's refuge and safety. Secondly, he he doesn't have this internal parasite destroying him, God preserves him. God is David's protection. He is not in this alone. He celebrates in fellowship with his brothers and sisters who also worship God with shouts of deliverance. What an amazing turnaround from pain and weakness, strength dried up by the the heat of summer, to the joy of safety, protection, and fellowship, all because of confession. Instead of remaining silent, he spoke to God. He found forgiveness and received the gift of deliverance. Now, I know it's just a television program, but in *Midsummer Murders, the vicar who confessed and and threw himself off the church tower reveals what confession looks like without God, without the power of God's transformative forgiveness. How does a person ever truly move on from, from sin, transgression, iniquity that has burdened them so much? Now, if you know the Psalms quite well, which I'm sure you guys do, you know we have to take care in applying a Psalm of David to our own lives. I think this has been one of the biggest challenge for me in doing my quiet times in the Psalms this year. What happens to the King of Israel does not necessarily happen to us. What is true of the King of Israel is not necessarily true of us. But we don't want to fear looking for the subjectivity. We don't want to miss out on the personal application God's word has for us in David's experience. Now, I think the best way to apply the Psalms to ourselves is to think through two stages. Firstly, take care to consider what is going on with David as a king. And secondly, consider what is going on with David as a believer like you and me. Well, what's going on with David as a king? Well, he's clearly struggling with sin and he desperately needs uh, the Lord for deliverance. And so if we if we consider the book of Psalms as a whole, we, we clearly see uh, that David is not the promised king of Psalm 2. He's not the ultimate king to deliver all of God's people if he's struggling with sin. And so firstly, we, we, we apply the psalm to ourselves with praise and, and joy and thankfulness that we do have the promised king, that we know Jesus. He is the ultimate deliverer for all who believe. And because we have asked for forgiveness uh, from him, we have confidence in our justification before God on the Day of Judgment. And so secondly, what's going on with David as a believer like you and me? Well, he's clearly struggling with sin and he desperately needs the Lord for deliverance, just like you and me. Yes, we have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, so we have confidence in our justification before God on the Day of Judgment. But sin is still a battle as we seek to live as God's delivered people, to live out our lives obediently to God, and Jesus wants that sin as well. I remember uh, Rupert telling me you'd been reading Gentle and Lowly, I think that's right. And I think most people have, it's been very popular. And, and I think one of the big things that that book achieves is just reminding or, or teaching people for the first time that Jesus wants our sin. The hard work has been done by Christ at the cross. The biggest thing we'll ever do, come into Christ, that's, that's been done. Now we can continually go to our Lord with our our daily battles with sin, and our Lord wants us to do that. This is the full expression of what the gift of deliverance looks like, a lifetime of giving our daily sin to the Lord, a lifetime of, of walking the way of the wise, seeking forgiveness when we stumble. This is the life as an apprentice to Jesus. And that brings us to our third and final point here. Obedience is is giving our life to the Lord. Remember, there are only two paths one can take, and that is the way of the wicked or the way of the wise. And from Psalm 32, we have seen that the way of the wise person who lives a life of happiness will continually seek out forgiveness for their sin by confessing to the Lord. We've seen... Quite clearly through this psalm, the the turmoil of a soul with unconfessed sin, the tragedy of the life, trying to live without repentance. And we've seen what always awaits us on the other side of confession, God's forgiveness. Now let us see what God has to say once a person has confessed and received forgiveness. Well, it's all about a life of listening and acting upon God's instructions. If you look down at verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, as as we pick ourselves up after a time of unconfessed sin and and breathe the the sweet, fresh air of forgiveness, where will we go from there? God tells us. How do we live in a way that doesn't see us returning to the pain of verse 3 and 4? God tells us. How do we know if we have strayed or drifted in our walk with God? God tells us. God will instruct us, God will counsel us. And God says to us today to, to, to refuse such instruction and counsel, well, God doesn't hold back. He says, be not like a horse or a mule, because those animals are without understanding. They are just led by their own instinct, and they need to be constantly trained and and directed, curbed with bit and bride, or else they will go their own way. Think of of when they put blinkers on on a horse so they they don't get distracted by something and run off in the the wrong direction. I I was gonna use an illustration of a dog, but after the prayer meeting (laughs) this morning, I thought, Ben, not, not really. Now, I I remember not long after I'd began my apprenticeship under Jesus, and and I was playing football, and and someone swore at me. Now, growing up, this kind of thing happened all the time, and so I reacted like I always did before knowing God. Um, I didn't give it a second thought. I just reacted, and I I got him by the throat and shouted at him, and etc. You know, and and growing up, after that sort of thing, I felt quite positive about it, to be honest, in, in some unhealthy sense of toxic masculinity. But this time, as a disciple of Jesus, instead I felt awful. I I felt genuinely ashamed. And I went home, and I couldn't do anything but turn to God and ask for forgiveness, and ask for forgiveness from the guy as well. But I wasn't just content to know God forgave me. I, I also wanted to be instructed by God how to learn from, from my experience. How should I deal with emotions in sport, God? How, how do I be con- competitive and, and strong in a way that brings glory to you? Going my own way, responding to my instincts, left me feeling awful, much like verses four and five of the Psalm. Yes, I asked for forgiveness, but I wanted to know how to avoid ending back in that same place. Giving my life to the Lord wasn't a one-off act, but a lifelong giving of every part of my life and heart to the Lord. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Let's invite Jesus into every area of our lives, all that is in our hearts, and listen to what he has to say and teach us, about how we should be living. Let us receive the message of Psalm 32, that blessed is the one who seeks forgiveness and is unburdened by sin. If we continually seek forgiveness for when we stumble, we will have a life of happiness. Today, we we see confession is the desperate need for forgiveness from the Lord. Confession is the ultimate path to freedom for a person who carries the weight of their transgression, sin, and iniquity. Whose burden can only be lifted by the forgiveness from the only one who can. When we empty our heart of the sin within it to God, he will in turn pour out his faithful love upon us. And we will move from a time of isolated, individual sorrow and groaning to a time of rejoicing with all of God's people. Truly blessed is the one who is forgiven. Verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so, after a, a, just a time of prayer, That's exactly what we're going to do. In gladness, we will rejoice and shout for joy as we stand singing in amazement of our Saviour's love for sinners like us. So let's just have a, a moment of silence just to reflect on that, and then I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son for us, that he took on all of our sin and did all the work at the cross for us. Father, we ask that you would strengthen and encourage us by your Holy Spirit, that we would continually seek out forgiveness and give our sin to your Son daily. We pray these things in his name. Amen.